Screenless. Making a soundtrack. Opening scene and action. doing? Hey, shush, shush, I'm recording. What are you recording? I'm recording the engine, like you asked. What, of a car? Yes, it's the only engine I could get hold of. Right. I don't have a plane in the garage. We're recording a series about the journey of the orchestral soundtrack. Yeah. So why would we be recording a car? Oh, now you come to mention it, that does seem a bit off. Okay. Shall we just uh, edit yeah, this? We'll edit cut this that bit. out. Okay, edit this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, where's Tristan today? Has he still got his Vespa? Uh, yeah, I, th- I think he's still got the Vespa, although he's having some more wing mirrors attached to it. <laughs> What's he up to now, 30? Yeah, something like, something like. I think if you just look over that hill, Salisbury Hill over there, I think, I'm not sure. Is that Peter Gabriel? Someone's zorbing down the hill. <laughs> Can you hear a voice? There's some sort of annoying whine. Yeah, it's a bit muted. Peter, can you come out? We can't hear you. <laughs> I'm not sure it's Peter Gabriel, actually. Hey, hey guys, how you doing? Oh, hey. Tristan. Tris, it's you. Dan, <laughs> we need a sharp Dan, object. Gareth, Hang on. Guys, can you hear me? Can you see me now? Oh, hey. Hey, yeah, Tris. Right, Tristan. Guys, I'm quarantining. Ah, right. Ah, this self-isolating. Is... Self-isolating. <laughs> We've literally popped your bubble. Very good. Very good. This whole introduction was leading up to that joke, I think. (laughs) In which case, oh dear. Oh dear. (laughs) For shame. (laughs) Okay, well, we are into the recording engineer episode of uh, Making a Soundtrack Season 2. The recording engineer is the person who sits in the booth... Uh, with probably the composer and uh, producers and orchestrator. Director. Director, yes. yeah. All the, people, all the other people involved, basically. So I imagine the stress level in that room is probably a bit higher than in the live room, would you say? Yes. Yeah, it always is a bit more tense. Depending on the project, there's a considerable amount of money being spent. So... And with a considerable amount of money being spent, there's obviously high expectations as well. So it can be quite stressful, but I think it's down to the team. It's down to the team that's in there. And obviously the recording engineer is part of that team. And Paul actually mentions how easy it can be sometimes to just be the person who keeps things calm, keeps things cool, so that nobody is losing their stuff when they needn't be losing their stuff. Mm. You've mentioned that before, Tristan, haven't you? Because you've worked with Paul before and you've commented that he is the calm person in the room. Yeah, he's one of the calmest the people influence. that I know. He, Yeah, he's very, he's got a very calming vibe about him, which is what you need when you're in a stressful environment like that. So he always handles any mishaps very well. Speaking of Paul, we haven't really properly introduced him. He is... Uh, an industry-renowned sound engineer, isn't he, working at the highest level. Yeah. And again, like many of our guests, his IMDb list is just crazy. a, a yeah. list of big blockbuster movies uh, and TV, including things like 
Downton yeah. Abbey and the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And just, I mean, go and take a look at his IMDb uh, list. We'll put the link in the show notes. At all those amazing things that he has been involved with. So without further ado, he said, sounding a bit wogan. Dan, do you have some facts about Paul? Nope. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> yeah, go on then, I do. Yes, you I do. I do, I do. Okay. All right, here we go with Fandango. Paul studied electronic and communications engineering at the Polytechnic of North London, but it wasn't long after graduating that he found his first studio job. Since then, he's worked at lots of the top London studios from Pinewood to Air and Abbey Road. He's a keen player of tennis, and his party trick is volleying a whole basket of tennis balls from between his legs whilst balancing a kiwi fruit on his nose. He's worked on over 200 productions ranging from Downton Abbey, The Lord of the Rings trilogy to Shaun the Sheep and Doctor Who. His favourite biscuit is a dark chocolate digestive, he loves the feel of the ocean, the taste of champagne, pina coladas and getting caught in the rain. Hey Paul, thanks for joining us today. We're sat here in Studio 2 at Air Studios, where actually you've newly been signed to the Air Management, so congratulations for that. Thanks, yeah. It's an honour. <laughs> <laughs> so let's just dive right into the questions. Can you expand on the role of a recording engineer? So a recording engineer, I suppose, is there to capture the performance of the composer's music, kind of uh, using whatever techniques and equipment you know that are appropriate. Um, and then the engineer is there to make that music recording do what it's supposed to do in the, the media that it's been designed for. So as in, um, so I'm basically talking about mixing and sort of mastering techniques. And you're basically trying to make the music sound good and make it work for what it's actually, you know, being used for at the end of the day, whether it's an album, whether it's a, a, a film soundtrack, whether it's whatever it is, yeah. title music, a trailer, could be anything, but it's got a, the recording and the, the mixing side of that is all aiming towards what you're actually trying to achieve at the end. Uh, beyond that, obviously, it's some, um, you know, liaising with uh, particularly the composer to sort of give the composer what they want at the end of the day. So, uh, and at what point do you become involved in a soundtrack? Is that is that sort of before the session or is it on the day? I normally like to prep my own um, Pro Tools sessions or uh, recording uh, software sessions before the actual recording, so as it gives me like a clear picture of what's what's going on and what needs to happen during the recording. And also, I become another person checking for any mistakes or issues before we actually get into the session. Obviously the sessions, as you as you know, tend to be quite fraught at times, as in a lot of music do in a very short space of time. So you're trying to head off anything that's going to slow you down as much as you can before you get there. So it's um it's a good process to actually, you know, be part of it before you actually walk into the studio. Or obviously, um, I'm thinking about setups and all the rest of it, but actually seeing the files, hearing the music, you know, checking the files and all the rest of it is... Um, uh, an important part of it for me because I, I, it's like really the start of the process. Is it quite a time-consuming process if you're having to sort of check through things? Um, yes and no. I mean, I, I kind of know from experience how long these things tend to take and I'm, I'm very, very quick at doing it and very quick at, you know, spotting the obvious mistakes. I mean, part of it depends on what you're given and how well organised it is. And, and um, I mean, sometimes I do the whole prep myself as in I'm doing the bouncing out of the files so then I'm in complete control of it. That's fine. If I'm sent things that are kind of starting in random places and actually aren't in time when you line them up and, you know, all the scores are very difficult to read if I'm checking for, you know, time signature um, mistakes or barring mistakes and things like that, then obviously that can, 
you know, add a lot of time. But on the whole, it's you have to work fairly quickly. You're normally on a deadline on most things, particularly in television. You'll you'll be doing it the the night before yeah. the recording session normally. Yeah. So, yeah, you you need to be working very efficiently, very quickly. I think we've spoken about this before. That correct me if I'm wrong, but do you you go to John Lund's studio when you work with him? And you actually, do you prep it at his studio? Yeah, um, I do. Um, just because of the, the system that he's got set up, it is all kind of ready to actually record straight into a kind of master template um, uh, recording session, which I then modified to, for whatever studio that we're going to be going to and take a copy of that. And then we would usually, um, apart from on big films, mix back at his studio too. So I can then bring that session back and then re then put it back into the and modify it back to be used in his studio with all the obviously the music that we've recorded in the external studio. So uh, yeah, and that, that's that's again that's the best way. I, even then, that's that's very sort of helpful because I'd be then even when I'm prepping, I'll be thinking about the mixings. I'll be thinking about the way that things are being rooted out through the system through the through the mixing console that he has at his home studio. So I'm actually really getting ahead of the game and seeing even before I've recorded it, seeing what. I'm going to be thinking about when I'm mixing it. So it's actually, it's a very useful part of the process. You mentioned about the score and sort of checking for errors. Is that something that you'll kind of do as a matter of course, um, you know, sort of checking through the score and checking either t tempo changes or <clears throat> time signature changes? I'm really, I'm not looking at it for uh, mistakes in the composition or, you know, or or the, the, you know, the chord that he's written or whatever like that. I'm really looking for technical faults to do with the recording. So. If I've got a MIDI file that's got a, a time signature change at a certain bar, I make sure it's the same in the score and, and make sure that the the bar numbers are the same and that I can see where if tempo changes are marked and if and, and if they actually exist in the MIDI file and if they're, they're the same ones or they're happening in the same place. There's often slight discrepancies between different pieces of software, so you, you do have to watch it. A lot of composers will be writing in a different piece of software to the one that we're recording in. So... The export of a MIDI file and all the rest of it isn't always one hundred percent. You can't, you can't yeah. believe it blindly. You've got to check it. So uh, it's that type of stuff, really. Um, and also, I'm obviously, uh, you know, the the bottom line is, and this has happened. I've, I'm checking that they've actually scored all the pieces of music that they're supposed to have done. And, um, <laughs> I've got one here that you haven't done. If we're not doing strings on this, oh, <laughs> oh excellent. So. You know, you mentioned sort of communication with the composer. Can you elaborate on that and tell us a bit more about how how you go about communicating with them and what sort of uh, exchanges happen either before or during the session? Um, well, it's not just the composer. I mean, it can literally be anybody um, on your list from um, your sort of first question, really, in regard to the the prep and then the session itself. Um, um, you know, for example, obviously I'll be talking about to the composer about what we've got to do, um, what we want to achieve if there's a priority order, uh, concepts of um, what control we want in the mix at a later point, for example. So if you've got a studio with booths, are we going to put the trumpet in the booth or are we happy with it in the room? And if it's in the room, then it's um, we worry that it might be too loud. Do we need more control than that? Do we ever need to get rid of a particular instrument? Maybe we should booth it off or um, record it as a separate pass. That type of thing is uh, sort of discussed. Um, but... It, you know, um, if I find a problem with the um, orchestration, I'll be talking to the orchestrator. If I find a problem with the printing, I'll be talking to the to the uh, music prep guy. I might even uh, talk to the fixer about, can you put me in touch with the drummer because I need to know how many toms he's going to be. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It could be anything, literally yeah. anything. Yeah. Depend and and you're just trying to make you know, make everything as efficient as it possibly can be. You know, um, 
is the guitarist bringing an amp? You know, is, I do I, that's all I'm interested in that about is do I need mics or is it going to be you know a line in type of thing? So it's um, I'd be talking to anybody at, at any point. Um, uh, obviously, in terms of the composer, you tend to have a, a, a close relationship with the composer, and you will have talked about the project sort of ongoing before, and um, we possibly would have talked about how we would set it up. You know, in terms of what strings, whether we do it um, standard classical setup or um, using an antiphonal setup, or do we want the basses to be in the middle anyway? You know, that type of thing. Um, and I've got concerns about that because I'm thinking about the, la- the the sound at the end of the day. And often they might not have even thought about those things. So it's kind of, yeah, we, there's a, there's a sort of two way discussion and that, that will go on and on. And, and we'll get, and if there's a television series that might even change throughout a series, you know, you might adapt your ideas as, as you see, oh, that would be better if we did it that way sort of thing. Have you had any experiences where the composer has suggested a certain way of recording it? For example, I know Jeff Foster does first violins on the left and second violins on the right. Yeah. Is there a case where a composer might suggest that and then you would explain the, the pros and cons of that situation? Y- yes, there is. I mean, um, um, and actually, again, that you bring the, the fixer in or the musicians in um, at that point, possibly too, and, and the orchestrator, because the key to doing something antiphonally like that is the first violins and the second violins, if they are um, hard left and hard right, as, as talking about stereo imaging, they can't hear each other as well in the room. So if they're playing very closely together in very close harmony, that's a consideration because you could make it actually um, more difficult for them to actually play, which of course could end up in a worse result. So you kind of have to, same thing with the basses, you know, whether they, they sit behind the cellos or they go in the middle, the, the basses tend to sort of drive the tuning of the whole orchestra. Usually they tend to tune from the bottom up, it seems to me, and it seems to them. So. The cellos like the basses behind them, whereas actually sonically often it sounds better if the basses are down the middle. And so, again, you, that's a consideration you have to take whether it's worth doing that for my stereo image, which obviously I'm very concerned about being a sound engineer, or, or you know, as it, is it going to affect how good the music is at the end of the day, which, of course, is a bit more important, really. <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> so, Paul, can you just talk us through what happens on the day of an orchestral session You've said you're involved in the setup and preparation beforehand, but can you can you dive into more detail about how you might go about setting things up on the day in terms of microphones and all of that type of thing? Well, the, the setup nearly always will have been planned in advance as much as possible. The actual setup is often done at, at least to some degree the night before, but that is studio and studio schedule dependent. Obviously, if you can't get in to do it, then you can't get in to do it. Um, or if they've got something right up to the point that you're recording, then you have to kind of, you know, do it in the timescale that you've got. In a normal situation where they've done it the night before, um, the morning of the session, the first thing I would be concerned about is that the files I've prepped from the day before actually load into the computer <laughs> and that we've got something to record <laughs> against. Otherwise, there's going to be a mad panic um, prepping you know, within the two hours that we have before the session starts. And that has happened, yeah, where um, um, Pro Tools has done something weird with the files, doesn't recognise the files that I've given it, and can't find them and it's kind of uh, for some kind of strange disc thing um and then all of a sudden you know we're in where we've got a problem you know it's kind of so you need to know that so you um that you can actually you know you've got something to record to actually when you get to that downbeat uh, start of the session and then aside from that once you can breathe the sigh of relief that that's working then basically you're um setting up the studio and the control room some of it would have been possibly set up already but you're 
you're basically finishing that off and then checking it. When the red light goes out, what are you sort of aiming for? Because I know you're aiming, I'm, we spoke about this before ages ago, and you, you said you were trying to achieve some sort of balance on the first run through. You know, you generally choose a, a cue that has uh, a lot of instruments playing, you know, preferably a, a, a good dynamic range. So playing loud and maybe soft so you can get the levels right. But can you just explain what you mean by balance? You're trying to get the balance right. So uh, you, in a normal situation, you would be using a combination of uh, room mics and close mics. And there's reasons for that. Um, and it, obviously the balance that you, that you have then between um, how much of each of those that you use depends on the room and also depends on the material. For example, if there's a, a piece of music where the, the music is sort of more staccato or, or kind of short notes, you possibly would favour the close mics a bit more than you would do normally. But if you've got a beautiful room, um, something like um, Erlinder's Hall here, the room sound itself is so amazing that you could literally listen to the room mics and live happily ever after because um, it's, it's a beautiful, natural sound. Although what you then find, although I'm kind of I'm, I'm going off on a bit of a tangent here, but what you then find when uh, using it for the sort of uh, end product is that you might need a bit of sound reinforcement from the close mics to make it a bit clearer, to make it work with the, you know, if it's, if it's has to, a piece of music that's under dialogue or under a car driving along, for example, you know, you've got to, it might need to be a bit clearer. It might not be that soft classical sound will possibly not work. So basically at the start of recording, um, I'm trying to make sure that all the microphones are working and I'm capturing them at a decent level um, and that the levels of all the mics on a particular se section are about the same um, volume uh, and that there's not any problems with those. And then I'm basically trying to get a balance between those close mics with themselves so that I could listen to just those and I would get a natural orchestral balance. I'm making sure that the overhead microphones are in balance as in, in the way that I want them, because obviously sometimes there could be seven, maybe even some people use even more. They use kind of mid-place ones. You could be using maybe up to 15 microphones that you would class as overhead microphones. So they've got to be in balance with each other to make it sound like you want to. And then you want, you're want you looking at the balance between the overhead microphones against the close microphones to get the sound that you want to hear or um, the sound that you think is appropriate. So that all has to go on really quite quickly, particularly on a television session, because you know that the microphones already work because you've tested them before the, the session started, but you don't really know what they sound like until some musicians start playing you know, their instruments into them. So you are trying to assess all of those things in very, very quickly. And obviously, at the same time, making sure that um, nothing's distorting and nothing's kind of doing something that it shouldn't be. And at the same time, everyone in the room is listening, you know, critically to what you're yeah. you're doing, probably more so than they, they ever do for the rest of the day. And it's kind of like, all of a sudden, you know, things could be going wrong, microphones could not be working properly, something might be not patched in quite properly or, you know, oxidised or something like that. You're trying to find all these things. Whereas actually everyone else is is wanting to hear what it sounds like because they're excited, in, you know, in the in the room. So it's a it's a funny period of very extremely high pressure for the engineer <laughs> for about that first 10, 15 minutes is like when you really sweat. Yeah, so that's a... Is it common to sort of change the placement of the mics once recording has started occurring? Uh, uh, yes, uh, yes and no. Depend, you know, you, you're trying to assess whether you're capturing what you you want to what you want to capture and whether and also you're thinking about the mixing. So 
if there's, for example, say you've got a harp in the room and you know full well that there's going to be times when the harp is going to need to be louder than it would be naturally in the room, but you're getting a lot of um, spill from other instruments, um, you might suddenly think that you want to move the mic closer to facilitate doing that at a later stage or frequency response that you're capturing is wrong and you know that a mic position change would uh, would change that if you've got time to do it you would go and do it and um, affect that change so, so you're, you're capturing the best that you possibly can capture without having to modify it quite so much later on when you're mixing it and also um, people bump into mics and <laughs> smack mics with their bow and all sorts of stuff you know and also mics droop and uh, yeah. you know there's you're constantly watching those things. Um, and you're listening out for room noise, aren't you, as well, and those sorts of things that can happen. Um, oh, very much so. In, uh, dur during the recording itself, yeah, yeah. And obviously if you're using a metronome that's being fed to people's headphones, you need to be very aware that that can actually spill into the room. And, and that's, you know, obviously that's a very that's an unnatural sound really that you, you want to avoid. So you need to be checking for all those sort of things. People's phones going off. I mean, it, you know, it all happens, you know. Um, uh, air conditioning things, uh, you know, light aircraft flying over the top. I mean, it happens all the time. So, uh. <laughs> Brilliant. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. You've been an engineer for more TV dramas than we have time to list, including Downton Abbey, Endeavour, The Last Kingdom, and for movies like the Lord of the Rings trilogy and The Talented Mr. Ripley. What differences are there between, say, sessions for a TV drama and sessions for a big movie? Well, interestingly enough, that not much really in terms of the way that we would approach it. Uh, when I say we, as in the, the the team of engineers that are working on something like that, um, big films tend to have more of everything on the whole. As in, they have more tech requirements. As in, they might want to monitor in Dolby Atmos or five point one sound or, or whatever it may be. Um, there's usually more musicians, and obviously that brings with it, you know, more setup and more microphones and more channels on the console being used and more therefore potentially more problems and therefore slower operation possibly and big films tend to have many more clients and their girlfriends and their, <laughs> their, tech, pet their tech support <laughs> team and they've all got their own demands so it tends to be more you know more of the issue tends to be client demands to be honest than anything else we if i was doing a string quartet for a uh, uh, for a film with like a 200 pound budget i would you would approach it and so would all the other engineers and assistants and recordists and all the rest of it in exactly the same way as if you had a hundred piece orchestra and you're doing a hollywood blockbuster it's kind of you're trying to do as the best thing that you possibly can for what your is in front of you you're trying to capture it and make it sound as good as you possibly can and make it as efficient as you possibly can it doesn't everything about that mentality is is exactly the same whoever yeah. and yeah. whatever it's for that's that never really changes, and uh, you'd use the best microphones that you could use. You'd use, the, you know, you'd you would uh, all those decisions would always be the the same, and 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 you'd prioritize whatever you needed to prioritize, you know, w within that sort of recording um, thing. So, yeah, the big films are very exciting, but as um, as geeky engineer lot, we get excited by the the, the string quartet as much as we do <laughs> yeah. with the, you know. So it's a, I wouldn't say the big films really change our outlook particularly. Okay. I've worked on sessions where you've been the engineer and you, you have a, just a remarkably calm attitude. And, and there are many positive references on your website which talk about your ability to stay calm in sessions. Why is that important? Well, as, as we were just alluding to, there's a lot that can go wrong in a, in a recording session. Obviously, you're dealing with electronics, high-end electronics, and it's, the, the equipment's work, uh, working to, to its optimum kind of level. And it goes wrong all the time. And um, 
you also find that you know the best sounding thing is often the vintage stuff or the valve equipment that's renowned for going wrong constantly so sort of being calm in those situations having the experience of knowing that happens and it does happen all the time is very important because you know obviously you're in a room with people who are spending often quite a lot of money um and they kind of will need to feel that you know everything's under control and it's all calm and you don't want them getting anxious uh, and that applies obviously to the musicians as well if they if you've got problems in the control room or problems with the mic or there's problems with the workflow or the operation like that that can add anxiety to, to the musicians and you want to keep that as as little as possible you want them to be um, not have to think about anything as much as because obviously you're trying to get them to play as best as they can possibly play because that makes them sound the best that they're going to sound and yeah. that affects everything at the end of the day and actually kind of selfishly makes my job easier because as if they play well and make it sound good then like win-win isn't it, for <laughs> it makes me. you sound better it makes yeah absolutely so um that's the key to it all you're you're just trying to you know keep keep a, a sense of control and that keeping people's anxiety levels down to yeah all in the name of productivity really and and a, a good result at the end and i think you need that i mean i i've spoken out about this in the past i get particularly nervous for sessions and i know and i'm not just saying this because you're here now I, I think i've said this to you before you you know I, i've come in and then just your kind of positive calm presence just instantly kind of calms me down and i think you need other people like that in the room you don't want somebody who is going to exacerbate that stress and feeling of, you know, anxiety. No, absolutely, yeah. It's it's a very it's a it has a very negative impact often, and um, I've certainly seen that on projects that I've worked on in the past. I'm very lucky on the whole not to work in situations like that. I'm not quite sure why that is, but um, I've certainly had them in the past, and um, it's a horrible way to uh, work and a horrible way to spend the day. And uh, obviously, you can understand it sometimes. People are nervous and um, and they can't necessarily help themselves um, and obviously you do everything you can to you know relieve that um relieve that stress from them but um and it doesn't help the musicians no. and, and the, the 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 musicians um they respond badly to that i think, I think they, they do yeah. yeah i think they do there's, there's much better to have a, 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 a it's a, the opposite to the way you'd think isn't it instead of being loud and brash it's actually because you're quite quiet um yeah you, you just speak when you need to absolutely um, yeah. which is the best way to be isn't it there's that adage as well of, of having too many cooks, you know, spoils the broth and all the rest of it. Um, there are people there that have got their own end of, um, you know, their own expertise and their, their own sort of take on certain things. And I'm included in that. But again, at the end of the day, we're a team thing. So if the conductor sees a microphone has moved, he'll tell me. If I hear something wrong that no one else has heard in in the recording in terms of the playing or the or the writing, I'll say something if no one else has said it. But everyone's got their own level of expertise. But at the end of the day, everyone's there to achieve the same thing. And without any dealing with professionals like that, not too much ego in the way that everyone everyone's open to everything from everybody and without actually stepping on people's toes can accept, you know, as in, oh, yeah, maybe you're right. You know, it's some, something to be taken on board. So uh, I think it's the right way to be. You yeah. Know, um, just you know don't you don't don't talk for the sake of it let yeah, other people absolutely. do their job and then get involved if you need to you yeah know, that's a, i think that's the key definitely you've told us about what happens before the session and during the session but what happens after the recording session are you finished or is there more to do uh, for example backing up and handing over the recorded sessions uh, well there's always backing up to do uh, obviously and there's you know sometimes you have to do some sort of post-session editing, um, you know, completing your notes if you have no time to write them, 
all the rest of it. Um, occasionally you'll find, uh, depending on what's happening next, in the uh, next part of the process, you need to edit and consolidate files into a particular format that someone else can then take away and, and import into their own system. And sometimes that involves obviously sort of complex naming, complex stemming, or I mean, even to the point that sometimes you may need to uh, mix things down into some sort of stem kind of thing. I mean, that, that's very rare because you, you'd, you'd want to leave that flexibility to the mix. But anything can happen really from my perspective people need to take that into consideration as well because it's like well the session might have ended but if there's still plenty to do then we're basically still working so we need to you need to factor time in for for that yeah and you and obviously the most important thing is you've got to factor time in for backing things up and making sure that they are as they should be and that you know multi-copies of things have been taken so um and that everyone's got what they want before they leave the studio so yeah that, that's kind of the most important bit so is that provided on a hard drive or something like that? Um, yeah, um, either that or it's uploaded to a server, um, whether it's the studio server that the, the, the client has then given a link to that they can download or whether it's the client's own server that we would upload to. I mean, I've even had this, you've had the situations where you're uploading the cue as you've recorded it to somebody else in a different studio who's then mixing it because <laughs> the deadline's so tight. <laughs> I mean, that does, that does happen. That is madness. <laughs> Do you back up? As you're going along, is it backed up in the studio automatically? Because, uh, you know, imagine getting to the point where you were just about to deliver the files and then somehow all the files got lost. I'm guessing there has to be some, some sort of backing up procedure automatically in the studio. Yeah, you'd think that, but actually very rarely really? there, there is. I That's mean, madness. so I'm, um, some studios do have kind of some auto backing system going, but oh, that that's actually only fairly recently been happening. I'm kind of, um, I'm not a paranoid person, but I am paranoid about that. So I'm constantly pestering my assistant to make sure that they have backed up. When I'm on a smaller recording session where I'm running everything myself, I would, and I'm jumping between queues, I often would back up each queue as I've done it. Just as I'm shutting one and opening another, I, don't, I would literally copy it to somewhere else. You would think that they would set up RAID drives to do that. I've never actually experienced anyone doing that. Wow. I'm not sure why that is. Um, you, you think you think that would be the thing yeah. yeah and i have had the horrible situation where someone's used some synchronization software to back stuff and, and done it the wrong way round and deleted <laughs> the files oh, no. um and we've had to record things again yes that has actually happened so uh, i bet they weren't too popular afterwards yeah, so. <laughs> he, he, yeah he, uh, he, he definitely uh, went a funny shade of white <laughs> for quite a long time and it was a cold day but he was definitely sweating <laughs> Brilliant. And to round things off, how did you get started personally in the business? Uh, is this always what you wanted to be doing? And are you living the dream? Well, I think I am. I mean, and it's always what I wanted to do. As in, not particularly, um, I wasn't particularly aiming for the film world. I wanted, to, but I wanted to be a sound engineer. And I've, obviously, I've done it for a long time, and I still love it. I still um, enjoy. I still enjoy being in a room like this that we're in now with this huge, great SSL console and. I get excited by it still, which is fantastic. And I basically, you know, it's a long time ago that I was getting the industry and there was very little in the way of uh, music technology ed education in those days, even though I did do uh, some kind of two-bit course with from uh, with the School of Audio Engineering or something like that, whilst I did, was doing my degree at the same time. But um, it was a complete waste of time, but um, at least I sort of did something. So I applied to studios and I got a job as a tape-op, as they called them in those days, which is basically, they call them recordists these days. Um, and you're basically an assistant engineer in charge of 
um, you know, assisting the engineer in whatever it needs, which is, you know, setting the studio up and um, running the tape machines as it was in those days and computers as it is these days, um, making the coffee, making sure the clients, you know, connected to the Wi-Fi. So I started off as a tape op uh, for a big studio group that was called Lansdowne CTS Studios, which unfortunately they, they no longer exist, um, sort of closed down in probably 2006, I think, finally, So, um, which is all very sad. But it was a big group of studios that um, had specialised in uh, music-to-picture work. Uh, Lansdowne has specialised in that since, like, sort of 1980. CTS was built with that in mind. CTS was wow. a, a famous scoring stage where lots of Bond films were recorded, etc., etc. So all of a sudden I was thrown into that world of film and television, which I hadn't really thought about, but it was, um, I think I found it was much, it was better for me. I think I found it much more exciting. And I, you had to be involved in the video side, the synchronization side, as well as the music side. Um, and I, I'm a big lover of film, so it was kind of like the perfect job and, and still is. And so I'm, yeah, I'm very, very, very happy living the dream. So you are living the dream. I am living the dream. Yeah. No, I do. No, I do really like it. Yeah. How do you like to enjoy the finished film or TV series? Will you will you go home and watch it, or are you too busy to do that sort of thing? Um, it depends on what it is. Obviously, you work on lots of things that you don't have choice of. So sometimes things that you do might not be to your taste. I will always listen to at least ten minutes of it just to make sure that I've done my job properly and let the music sounds and 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 actually that's a very important part of the process because you are checking on your work in its end kind of. Um, incarnation you know whether you see a film in a cinema or a television program on the television or a radio show on the radio or or whatever it is um you're making sure that actually you've achieved what you're aiming for and you're listening for things that maybe i could have done that better as in usually in terms of tonally you're you're looking you know for the balance between the the low and the mid and the high frequencies to making sure you've got that right relative to the to what it's being broadcast on and what it's what actually is the way it's working with any other, any other sound that it's actually with. So obviously, if you're doing a television score, a lot of your score will be combined with other sound, as in atmospheres, um, sound effects, dialogue, all sorts of things. So your music has to work sonically with all of that. So that's a very important part of the mixing process, as I've said before. So um, you're checking on your work, basically. But I mean, the, the enjoyment is... Um, I guess occasionally we get invited to what they call cast and crew screenings, where everyone that's worked on it is invited to a, a screening of it uh, in a cinema, usually on a usually on a stupid hour on a Sunday morning, which is such a bad idea. But that's when the cinemas are empty and you can hire them out. Um, but that's a, that's a lovely sort of process where you actually get to sit with all your sort of compatriots, who a lot of whom you've never met. Obviously, working in the music side of it, you only meet the music people. Um, but um, and it's kind of like a joyous kind of occasion where you're kind of in seeing your end, end work and there's lots of back slapping and, um, and everyone seems to only remember the good bits and not the bad bits <laughs> about what happened. But it's a, that is a lovely moment, yeah. So that is, that's, that's the way that we'd like to enjoy it. But uh, don't get, don't always, they don't always happen. You don't always get invited. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's a, that's a nice thing. Well, Paul, thanks for joining us today. It's been hugely insightful. Yeah, pleasure. I think, you know, specifically engineering is, it seems to be such a kind of hidden art, a secret art that not many people really know about. Um, I think because, you know, you're generally so quiet in the studio, uh, engineers just as, as generally, you know, it's, it's normally the composer and people like that that sort of take up the limelight. So it's interesting to hear your side and what you do. So thank you very much yeah, for giving pleasure. up your time. Yeah. It's a pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks. 
Another amazing interview, Tristan. Thank you so much. Yeah, Thank well you. done, Tris. Yeah, I think what was interesting talking to Paul was how important it is to communicate with the composer to get the best possible sound for the desired end results. And, you know, choosing things like where the mic should be can result in a completely different sound and can actually make it more difficult for the players if they can't hear each other properly. For instance, I think he mentioned, you know, violins perhaps playing close harmony. And if you've got them on the very left-hand side of the hall, the first violins, and the very right-hand side of the pool, the second violins, that can make it difficult for them to tune with each other. So you can actually end up making things more complicated by changing things from the, the norm. Following on from that, he said about trying to make everything as easy as possible for the musicians so that they can play at their very best. Because if they're playing at their very best, it just makes his job easier. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, I suppose it's trusting the team, isn't it? Because he doesn't really concern himself with things that other people do in the team. And he, he's all about that stereo image. He's all about the mic placement and recording. Because... You know, the, the buck stops there. If he doesn't record it properly, that's the recording. Yeah. <laughs> it's just enormous pressure again. We'll fix it in the mix. No, we won't fix it in the mix. We'll get it right no. straight away. Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> um, so he is looking for technical errors rather than musical errors. That's not, he just doesn't concern himself, does mm. he? No, no. And the fact that considering what is going to be recorded, what instruments, what you're going to do, you know, when he mentions the trumpet, are we going to have the trumpet in the room? Are we going to have the trumpet in the booth? Because, you know, it's going to bleed over everything. So it's going to be more difficult mm. when it comes to mixing later on. Those kind of things I found very interesting because it's not as simple as just putting everybody in the same room and, and yeah. doing it. I remember we, when we did, uh, oh, was it the first? I think it was the first series of Wizards versus Aliens, and the engineer said, "Are you sure you want that percussion in the room?" Because Sam had done a piece with a bucket and chain, and the chains were lifted up and dropped into the bucket, mm. and he was like, "Are you sure you want that in the in the room?" And uh, we were like, "Oh yeah, 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 be fine." And then when it came to mix it, it was like, uh, "That's just everywhere." <laughs> We may have made a bit of mistake there, but uh, yeah, I got I got past it. But uh, in hindsight, we should have done that as a as a separate thing or had them in a booth. I mean, there was no booth where we were recording, but we could have probably partitioned it off a little bit to keep it a bit more contained. Gives you far more control, doesn't it? You're putting it does, booth, it does, booth. and it's it's about keeping your options open, so you're not stuck with well, okay, we're going to have to fix that every time that's featured we'll just have to fix it mm. it's a case of okay we've got options oh that is a little bit of a problem it's all right we can just we can turn that down and and then that's that's fine and a testament to that engineer for asking in a very respectful way because yeah he might have yeah intended that to bleed every exactly every exactly recordings but you know uh that was a, a very nice calm thing to do yeah yeah and you do find that with engineers those engineers that have been around enough they just ask the right questions. There's no wasted, you know, oh, are you sure you want this? Are you sure you want that? Should we do this? Should we do that? Nine times out of 10, they'll make the decision on it unless you've specifically said, but they may, if you haven't come up with something, as in the case of that, they may say, are you sure you want to do that? Just to double check, mm. you know. Yeah. Which in engineer speak means, yeah, that's a, please don't Yeah, do that's that. a stupid idea. <laughs> do not do that. Also interesting, yeah. I thought, when he said you need to factor in time after for all the extra bits and bobs, the backing up, the making sure mm. that everything, you know, and making sure that everybody has everything they need before they leave. 
because I can see very easily people going, well, that was fantastic. Thanks so much. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Big hugs. Off they go. <laughs> and that's it. And then, yeah. you know, mild panic. Oh, hang on a minute. Have we got so-and-so? Have we got... Yeah. It takes me back to the gigs of, as soon as the gig's over, certain members of the band will just go off yeah. and socialise. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> rather than pack the gear up. <coughs> Singers. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I wasn't going to say it. Oh, sorry, sorry. I should probably yeah. uh, should self-isolate with that cough. <laughs> okay, so uh, is that a wrap? I think that's. Oh, what, I think Tristan's uh, trying to blow up his orb. Oh, he. he... Okay, Tris. Well, we'll leave you to it. Um, and in the meantime, Dan, is that a wrap? It's a rip. That's a wrap. How do you find us? Makingasoundtrack.com will tell you all you need to know. Links to the podcast, social media links, and there's information about us. If you're enjoying the podcast, it would make our day if you could give us a positive rating or review. Details of that are at makingasoundtrack.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, hit that share button and recommend it to someone else. That's all for this episode. See you next time. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Let me do a Triss. Oh, uh, what, what? Uh, let me just look it up. <laughs> <laughs> what have I done? I'm, uh. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm only pulling your leg. I'm just as bad. <laughs>